Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News and Social Artistry, right here on KOPN, your community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri, as you are on the dial at 89.5 FM, uh, or maybe you're uh, streaming at uh, kopn.org. Or uh, maybe you're just listening to a podcast that uh, is from the past. And actually, you will be doing that because uh, we're Zooming uh, today again. And uh, the recording will come up on uh, the appropriate time. Uh, I'm your host, Dick Dalton. Each week, we have the pleasure of talking to someone who's building a more humane world from the inside out. And we're going to do part two today. Uh, last week, I, my guest was Dr. James McCrae from Westminster College over in Fulton, Missouri, and he's back. Uh, professor of uh, philosophy and religious studies, uh, chair of the classics and philosophy and religious studies department, um, father, um, uh, husband, uh, martial arts teacher. Um, we have a few things to talk about today, and particularly moral development. Welcome again, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be back. Yes. Um, I I knew last week when we got close to the end that there was too much more uh, uncovered material and particularly some practical applications uh, of martial arts or how we could think about moral development. Because personally, I think it's a grab bag in our world of moral development and it's not uh, it's not very healthy so maybe we can solve the world's problems <laughs> probably not what do you yeah, think I, about that I, I I agree uh, I think moral development is absolutely critical I'm an ethicist so this is one of the areas that I focus on in my own research and also as a martial arts instructor I'm trying to teach moral development in my martial arts classes because um, if as I mentioned in an article that I have coming out pretty soon I if you teach somebody martial arts and you don't teach them to be ethical and to be responsible it's really like handing a chimpanzee a loaded handgun mm -hmm. I mean they, you give them the ability to do violence and you don't teach them when it's okay to do violence or under what circumstances it's morally appropriate or how to restrain that violence. So I think we generally as a society don't do a very good job of teaching moral development. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wrote my doctoral dissertation many years ago on moral development and kind of a response to Lawrence Kohlberg, who's a theorist. Uh, he's a psych he was a psychologist. He passed away in the 1980s, mm. but he was interested in the relationship between cognitive development and moral development. And just as Piaget argues, there are certain stages of cognitive development. Kohlberg argues that we go through stages of moral development that are based on our cognitive development. We have to have the ability to think about ethics in certain ways, and that requires a certain cognitive prerequisite. And he said we have these three major stages that we go through. And he changed his theory over the years as he was uh, criticized by Carol Gilligan and other theorists and modified it and made it better. But most of us, well, all of us start life in uh, what he calls the pre-conventional phase, and it has two sub-stages to it. 
And here you're thinking about ethics in terms of what's good for me and bad for me. So you follow rules because you want to get rewarded and praised. You don't do the bad things because you don't want to get punished. And then you, around early adolescence or so, you start moving into the conventional stage or conventional phase. There's actually a couple sub stages as well there. And in the conventional phase, you are doing what's right because that's what your peer group or what society as a whole tells you. And that can be good or bad, depending on which peer group you happen to be hanging out with. Um, I mean, I was raised in, in Tennessee, and there's a lot of wonderful things about the South. You know, they, they stress being polite and being respectful and being helpful to others and being kind. Um, but then things like misogyny and racism and homophobia and Islamophobia and other things can be common there. So depending on who you're hanging out with in the South, you might be a pretty virtuous person or you might be a pretty vicious person. So Kohlberg says that uh, the highest phase is what he calls post-conventional. And this is where you're basing your concept of right and wrong on universalizable moral principles. And so someone in this stage is using the major moral theory. Some of the things we talked about last time, deontology, utilitarianism, uh, virtue ethics, care ethics, these types of things to try to solve moral problems. And Kohlberg himself was very interested in deontology in particular, but after being criticized by people like Gilligan, he expanded it to include things like care. He actually hypothesized there might even be another stage, like a seventh stage after mm -hmm. the six mm -hmm. major ones where um, you focus on like religion and like ultimate reality and these types of things, but he never fully developed that one before he died. Let me and, just interject yeah. on, that, on that little point mm -hmm. uh, or big point. Uh, he uh, was doing this back in the 70s, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, 70s and 80s. Yeah. And it's interesting that Maslow and mm -hmm. his hierarchy, uh, we all think of the, the self-actualization as the, the top. Mm -hmm. But after most of his stuff was written, he also went to the transcendent mm -hmm. uh word and level where you you transcend self mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's kind of interesting to me that uh, there are others that were using and coming into this idea of transcending certain things particularly yeah. self kinds of things that um, maybe were religious in orientation maybe not but it was still transcending self Absolutely. There are, there are a lot of philosophers who talk about stage-wise moral progression. Soren Kierkegaard, uh, who's a famous Danish philosopher, arguably the world's first existentialist, mm -hmm. and he has these three major phases. The first one's the aesthetic, where you live life for yourself, you know, personal pleasure, pleasure um, and, and uh, things that make you happy. And then he says, eventually, a lot of people get dissatisfied with that and you transcend it for the ethical stage where now you're living for other people and you're thinking about hmm. universal moral principles. But he says, eventually, even that will be dissatisfying and you'll transcend that for the religious uh, phase where he has this idea of a it badly. It's badly translated a lot of times as leap of faith. It's really more of a leap into faith. Mm -hmm. where you, you've pushed reason as far as it will go, and then you make this leap into a religious life uh, of, of virtue ethics, where you're trying to Im imitate the virtues. He was a Christian, so he was trying to imitate the virtues of Jesus, but I think it could be generalized probably for other faith traditions as well. So yeah, you see a similar idea of you know this, this stage-wise progression, starting with egoism, moving with an awareness of other people to universal moral principles, and possibly even spiritual cultivation at, at the apex. So at this very early, early age, 
um, our children are, mm-hmm. in a sense, being taught morals simply by monkey see, monkey do, um, whether it's parents or siblings or TV or the, now the, the phone that they have in front of them or, or YouTube, whatever it might be. And there's a kind of ethic that they are absorbing, yet they don't have critical thinking skills necessarily. Uh, I guess some of those programs try to get them to think critically about some things. Uh, so in, a, in this idea of development, you may say that we, or Kohlberg or someone would say that we start off selfish, self-oriented, and I'm sure that's true, but in a sense, it's, it's, uh, we don't even know who we are. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I just uh, heard a phrase the other day uh, from a very young person, I don't know what to do with my life. It's like mm-hmm. I don't know who I am. So that's... is this another kind of a angle on moral development that you've experienced or you I think so I mean it, ethics is very much related to philosophy of the person you know what does it mean to be a person how do you cultivate yourself as a person uh, and I think I mean as a college professor almost all of my freshmen are in this area right mm-hmm. I don't I don't know who I am I'm not sure that the values I was raised with are my own values I'm critically examining them I don't know what I want to major in I don't know what to do with my life so there's a process of critical self-reflection that goes on here. And, you know, as Kohlberg argues in his own system, you have to think critically about stuff. You can't, you can't just blindly accept things. So he criticizes what is known as the bag of virtues approach. And most of us have received this in school or in church or other places, uh, unless we were fortunate and had really good teachers. And the idea is they'll tell you, be courageous, be honest, be fair. Mm-hmm. And they don't tell you what that is. And so you say, well, that's great. I I guess I'm all of those things. But then you get no practice actually doing it. Mm -hmm. And so what Kohlberg did is he had these moral dilemmas and he would ask people to solve these moral dilemmas and he would listen to the solutions that they gave and he could then place them in their level of moral development. And what he had in mind in education is that we would teach kids to solve these dilemmas. And so when I was at the University of Hawaii working on my master's and PhD, I was fortunate to work with Tom Jackson out there who runs the philosophy in the schools program. So we would teach critical thinking skills to uh, kids in the K through 12 educational system. And uh, my friend, Ben Lukey, who I went to grad school with out there is still working in that. He got his PhD and he he works in one of the schools out there and runs and he's their philosopher in residence. (laughs) So he actually got to, he got to meet the Dalai Lama when he visited, you know, because of this, because his holiness, the Dalai Lama was so excited about this program he wanted to see it firsthand so i worked with second through sixth graders and tom jackson has this whole system uh that he teaches them that teaches them seven fundamental principles of critical thinking and then he'll come up with different topics and the topics can be stuff like you know in the second grade around december the really important issue for them is whether or not santa claus exists Uh (laughs) and so they might investigate something as seemingly silly as that but the arguments that they're offering are actually pretty sophisticated and we're teaching them to ask 
you know, what do you mean by terms? Define your terms with criteria. Do you have reasons for that? If so, are those good reasons? Do you have an evidence-based argument? Are you making any foundational assumptions? So what inferences can we draw from this? Um, is that statement true? How do we know that it's true? What are your sources? Can you give examples to, to bolster the argument that you're making? Do we have any counterexamples that would refute it? And so you teach kids to do this. And it's interesting because it actually, in the schools where they've done this, they've seen the kids' performance improve academically, like their test scores will go up, they'll perform better in class. But also socially, we had one teacher, there was a couple guys in class who had gotten in fights all the time. You know, Hawaii is a, a warrior culture, right? So uh, it's, fist fights are very, very common. And so these kids had been suspended a couple of times for getting in fist fights. And so the teacher and I had finished our session and we were walking and, you know, everything's outside in Hawaii, right? So we're walking out towards this courtyard area and we hear the kids arguing from a distance and their voices are raised and we think, oh no, they're about to get in a fist fight. And as we get, and so we're jogging towards them to, to break up a fight, we think. And as we get closer, one of them saying, no, 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 I think you're making an assumption there. What, what source do you have for that? No, that's not a valid source. And so now they're having a philosophical argument instead of punching each other. So, uh, wow. and they've, yeah, so, I mean, it works very, very well. So when you teach people critical thinking skills and then you give them practice, you know, every single week, multiple times, we're going in there and having them use these tools mm -hmm. to investigate these issues. You give them that practice and now they're good at resolving moral dilemmas without resorting to violence and other terrible things that can create problems. So what I do is oh, oh, I okay. use... Just, just yeah, sorry. No, mm -hmm. no, no. Uh, he's developed a protocol. Mm -hmm. He must have it written down. He, he, he has. And there's actually, this is not just Tom Jackson's movement. Yeah, I mean, okay. uh, Mont Montclair State University, actually, you can get an advanced degree in philosophy for children. So there are a lot of schools throughout the United States and other parts of the world. They do this in Japan, China, other places uh, where they, they, teach philosophy in a K through 12 environment. So, so it's, can you give some uh, ways for our listeners? You know, people are wanting, I think people are kind of desperate in some cases for something that works. Uh, can, mm -hmm. is there a link? Is there a website? Is there a book? Uh, there... Yeah, I think there's, well, Matthew Lippman has written a ton of stuff on philosophy for children. Uh, if you go to the Montclair State University website and just, or if you just do a Google search for philosophy for children, it sometimes gets abbreviated P4C, like the letter P as in philosophy, mm -hmm. the number four, and then C as in children, so P for C. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff that's been written on it that, that's very, very good. So in your own uh, raising of uh, your kid, are you have more than one? Just one. Just one, yeah. So you, you probably practiced on him. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, my, my wife is a history professor at Westminster College, and she's uh -huh. an intellectual historian. So she does the history of philosophy, religion and medicine uh, in the Middle Ages in particular. And so, yeah, we you know, my, my kid has been bombarded with all sorts of <laughs> educational <laughs> stuff. But but I mean, he I was teaching in my ethical warfare class on Friday. We were talking about um just war theory and justice in endings or what they call use post bellum justice after war so how do you and he's 13 uh, right 
Uh, my son is 13. Yes. My son is 13. Mm -hmm. So uh, in my college class, we were talking about the Treaty of Versailles, and he was asking me what I was doing in class. And I mentioned we were talking about the Treaty of Versailles and how it uh, was problematic and actually created the problems that led to World War II. And, and he said, oh, the Treaty of Versailles. It's it, it's wonderful when a treaty can end one world war and start another one, you know, and <laughs> like so this is the kind of stuff that he says on a regular basis. Uh, and but I think having that educational background really helps people to develop uh, an interest in learning. I mean, hit, my my son's favorite thing to do is to, you know, like watch history videos. Mm -hmm. And so he's he's very much a history buff and very knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. And he goes to the uh, in Jefferson Middle School, the STEAM Academy in Columbia, and, and they do a fantastic job there. I mean, the, the it's a really an excellent public educational institution. And so I, I think when you get kids curious and you teach them that they have to think critically about things, then they start realizing that uh, it, it's not sufficient to simply believe things just because it feels good or try to force your beliefs on other people when you don't have a good reason. You have to have evidence-based arguments for everything. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to teach this in my own martial arts classes because, I mean, as I mentioned before, if you, if you don't teach your students to be ethical and have good critical thinking skills, and then you teach them martial arts techniques, it gets pretty dangerous. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of adapted this idea of using moral dilemmas to scenario training in martial arts. So I'll have the students, I'll, I'll typically give them a lesson at the beginning. You know, the first five minutes or so of class will be a key idea from some aspect of philosophy in the martial arts. And then I'll have them run through scenarios of conflict resolution because hmm. so much of martial arts is learning to avoid problems and learning to talk people down. And it may not even be a violent situation. It might just be a dispute with a coworker or trying to argue with your boss about something in a way that doesn't upset people. Mm -hmm. And so we get very, very good at resolving these conflicts in nonviolent ways. And uh, it's you know, like jujitsu, one of the martial arts that I teach. Um, I've also done a lot of judo and they both come from the same martial arts, you know, Japanese jujitsu. And the jujitsu, jitsu just means technique or art. Ju means yielding strength or suppleness. So like when you're pushed, you don't push back. You take the push and you pull at the same time and then channel that energy into a throw or a, mm. a joint lock or a pin. Mm -hmm. And so you can use a similar strategy verbally. You can do verbal jujitsu or verbal judo, right? When you're, mm -hmm. when you're arguing with somebody rather than saying, no, you're wrong and I disagree with you and I'm going to tell you why. Mm -hmm. You take the other person's foundational assumptions to be true and show based on their view how they really ought to endorse your own conclusion. Oh. And so they're much, we call it internal argument in logic. I, I'm not taking my own external view and trying to force it upon you. I'm taking your worldview and showing how it actually leads to my conclusion, which is much more likely to convince somebody. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Can you give, well, in a moment, would you think about uh, an example of that? Absolutely. And I'm gonna take a break here and say, hi folks, uh, glad you're listening to Glocal News and Social Artistry here on KOPN, your favorite community radio station in Columbia, Missouri, 89.5 FM on your dial, uh, KOPN.org, streaming all the time, podcasts galore, all kinds of diversity and programming, music, news, talk, uh, just go to our menu on the uh, program page and feast on the, the buffet that's available for 
so many different tastes that uh, we all like something. So you'll find yours there somewhere. Uh, And we appreciate your support for KOPN. And we've been doing this for very close to 50 years. We're in our new facility. We have a new executive director. Jet's just uh, on fire for making KOPN uh, the best it could possibly be. New staff, lots of good volunteer work, and your support. So thank you so much. Uh, This particular show uh, comes on once a week, as uh, you're seeing here today or listening to it today. And uh, we talk to people that are building a more humane world. And my guest today is uh, Dr. Jim McRae over at Westminster College, a professor in philosophy and religious studies. And we're talking about moral development and how this can practically work in our own family setting, in in schools, uh, um, in broader uh, applications. And I just asked Jim to give me an example of this thing that uh, he's calling uh, internal, well, you call it again, Jim. In logic, we call it internal argument. So you take the other person's worldview, their foundational assumptions to be true, and then you show how that person's assumptions, their worldview actually leads to your own conclusion. So it's kind of a little verbal jujitsu rather than, you know, when they push with their argument, you don't push back with your own and say, no, you're wrong. You need to reject your entire worldview and accept mine. Mm-hmm. You say, well, your foundational principles actually lead to my conclusion. So a few years ago, uh, I, one course I teach on a regular basis every other year is environmental ethics. Oh, good. And so a lot of students will take it because they can knock out a whole bunch of, <laughs> you know, writing intensive credit and research credit and like all these other general education things that they have to have. So it's popular amongst our environmental studies, environmental science and philosophy students, but there are a lot of people who just take it as a gen ed. So I had a guy who was a business major. And he himself was a social and fiscal conservative. And he's, you know, he's kind of skeptical early in the semester. He says, I don't know if I buy it, all this environmentalism stuff, you know, it, 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 it really clashes with my values. And so I told him, I said, well, what do you know about Teddy Roosevelt? And, and he said, well, not very much. So, you know, and uh, Teddy's near and dear to my heart because not only is he a great president, but also uh, I think we mentioned in our last conversation uh, last week, he actually earned a brown belt in jujitsu while he was in the white house uh he he, you know teddy was a a a big athlete so he he would he was wrestle and box he was actually partially blind in one eye because william howard taft when he was secretary of war hit him and and uh, gave him partially detached retina and so he he switched purely to grappling arts and when he found out about jujitsu he 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 embraced it but but teddy was a big conservationist i mean Mm -hmm. he did more for our national park system than probably any other president, certainly one of the most important. And he cared passionately about conservation, taking care of nature, not only for its own sake and its own intrinsic beauty, but also so it would be there for the next generations. So I told my student about this and he got really excited and said, well, can I write my midterm paper on on Roosevelt? I said, I wish you would. So he wrote a great midterm paper on the conservative environmental ethic of Teddy Roosevelt. And then his final paper, he got really interested in Confucianism and he wrote a great paper on like Roosevelt and Confucianism and parallel ideas and how we might work with China to resolve common problems. But note what we did here. I, I didn't say you're wrong and, you know, that, that party's wrong. I said, no, look, the Republicans have really good, a really good history of mm-hmm. pa- caring passionately about conservation. You should embrace that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, I mean, instantly it turned him around. Mm-hmm. Great. Perfect example 
Uh, I'm going to go in a little different um, question, mm -hmm. same idea. We sometimes hear that some people look at the world through a lens of scarcity mm -hmm. and others look through the lens of abundance. And these sort of set up a worldview mm -hmm. for people. So let's say someone is approaching you from the worldview of scarcity and I kind of get the impression that you're coming from the worldview of abundance. <laughs> how, how would you define those? Okay. Like scarcity uh, and abundance. All right. If you're uh, coming from scarcity, uh, fear is really a prominent factor in the way you deal with the world. And uh, it a little broader than just a, a few phobias that we might have. Uh, abundance is there's, uh, you, you have a, a, a larger trust somehow. You don't maybe have definitions for why or how that would be coming, you know, where that comes from, but it's more of a trust. Things will work out. Fear says, oh, I don't think, how could it possibly work out? Look at what's going to happen. Abundance says, well, you know, it, it'll work out. So that's uh, that's been more of a, a way of looking in a simplicity way uh, for me than uh, some of the other approaches that I've, I've seen. And I just wondered if you'd come across that. Yeah, remember a psychology class as an undergraduate, one of our professors was talking about optimism and pessimism and worldviews and was asking, mm. just kind of going around the class and you know, had a glass of water and said, is the glass half full, half em empty? We've all heard this before, right? And people are saying, oh, it's half full or half empty. And it got to me, I was maybe fourth or fifth because I sat in the front row. And, and I said, it's half full of water and it's half full of air. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it, technically the glass is completely full, but half of it's water and half of it's air. And Good. then the next guy in class was a physics major and said, technically it's mostly empty space. And so that, that was a whole other area of discussion. <laughs> but Buddhists would like that one. But yeah, I, I tend to be in between the two positions, I suppose, because uh, particularly in environmental ethics, scarcity is a reality. I mean, we have scarce resources and the, the planet only has so many resources. And if we keep using resources at the rate that we currently are uh, and everyone in the world got the same standard of living as like the United States or, or much of Europe, we would actually need five more planet Earths to sustain that. So, I mean, overpopulation is a problem. Consumerism is a problem. Fossil fuel use is a problem. Uh, so I think the scarcity is, is a reality that we have to be mindful of. But I also think that human beings have the power, if they work hard, to change and make a positive impact on the environment. It doesn't have to be negative. And uh, I, in some of my previous publications, talking about environmental security, you know, human beings have an environmental impact. And that destabilizes political systems and economies. But then you have an option, right? You can either respond to it in a positive way, which has a positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. uh, you, ch you change your environmental impact so that you're no longer damaging things. Or it can respond in a negative way, which oftentimes leads to conflict and violence. So I think hum we, we have a choice. Mm -hmm. and, and this applies to martial arts, too. You, you always have a choice. You can be a positive influence on your community and the people around you and even people who are trying to start conflicts with you mm -hmm. or you can be a destructive and negative influence and and so it, it's really up to you but if we want a society where people are going to cooperate 
we have to teach them certain critical thinking skills so that we're, we're all on a level playing field of using evidence-based arguments to justify our points of view because otherwise we're, we're just going to clash i have uh, gotten in trouble for one of my approaches to what you were just talking about you said we always have a choice and uh, I, in my book you might have noticed there in the beginning i uh, I have the phrase free will and free has a big X through it. And I make the bold statement, no one really has free will because of all of the influences on our decision making. And we oftentimes don't know why we make the decision that we make. It comes from a habit or it comes from a experience that we had and was so it was our personal experience. So I, I, I'm questioning your, uh, you're saying we always have a choice, but choices are based on premises or on unknowns that we don't even know. Uh, how would a philosopher uh, talk me through this problem that I have? <laughs> yeah, the, the free will debate is a huge <laughs> issue, so I'll just hit the highlights. There are three general points that people take here. One is determinism. It's the idea that you have no free will whatsoever. Your genes causality, your environment have radically determined everything. So right now, I think I've decided to use this example. I've chosen these words. The reality is my genes, my environment, causality force me to do it. Uh, but if that's the case, then we lose ethics because you can't hold me responsible for what I did if I have no free will. We lose the law, which is an extension of ethics, and we lose really any meaning in life because what's the point of getting up in the morning if you know, I'm just going to be on autopilot, right? So this comes with some challenges. The other extreme, which is also problematic, is libertarian free will. Not to be confused with the libertarianism, the political view. It's mm -hmm. the same term, but it means something different. This is the idea that I am radically free to do whatever I want so long as it's physically possible. My genes, my environment, uh, my, my habits, all this stuff, it, it does nothing to determine me. But this is kind of unrealistic, too. I mean, if we're all a product of our genes and our environment and our habits to some degree. Mm -hmm. The middle ground position is known as compatibilism. And it's the idea that free will is constrained by genes and causality and your environment and so on. But you typically have a little bit of wiggle room. So things like nonlinear systems theory, AKA chaos theory show that as systems get more and more complex, having absolute 100% determinism kind of goes out the window. Like if you look at a chaotic pendulum, you know, a normal pendulum, like on a grandfather clock just has one hinge mm. and you can completely predict if you know all of the physical factors about it, the length of the pendulum, the mass of it, you know, uh, how well the pendulum's lubricated, you can predict exactly where that pendulum's going to be at any point in the future. If you put a second hinge on it, and there's YouTube videos of this. It goes crazy. <laughs> I mean, it be, you can't talk about exactly where it's going to be. All you can do is talk about probability. So it's like predicting the weather. Right. There's so many factors. I can say there's a 98% chance that it won't rain today, but there's still a little bitty chance. Mm -hmm. And chaos theory actually came out of early attempts to use computers to predict weather. And they realized we can't do it with 100% certainty. So causality, while it does limit us in certain ways, I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's not the case that we have zero free will. Same thing with genes and environment, right? Um, you oftentimes see 
uh, like my, my grandfather was an alcoholic. And so my father had those genes and that environment. And he has always been incredibly responsible with his consumption of alcohol. He's never been drunk once in his life. And every time he drinks, he drinks in carefully metered doses and never goes beyond. And so you'd say, well, with the with that environment, growing up with an alcoholic father and with those genes, shouldn't he be an alcoholic? Shouldn't I be an alcoholic? You know, but no, you can you can make a choice. So compatibilism says there's a little wiggle room in there. Mm -hmm. And so one of the better compatibilists, I think, Harry Frankfurt, says that um, when you have a desire for something, you have the desire itself and then you have like second order desires about your desires. So if I have a jujitsu tournament coming up and I want to stay in my weight class, um, I, I, I know I shouldn't eat fatty foods. If I have a desire for those fatty foods, that's my first order desire, my desire for the food. But then I can have a second order desire, which is a desire about my first order desire. And I say, I shouldn't eat that because I want to stay in my weight class and I want to be fit and I want to, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you know, not get crushed in the tournament. And Frankfurt says people who critically reflect about their first order desires and have those second order desires have some degree of free will. But a lot of people don't reflect about the first order desires. And he calls these people wantons. They're just going around wantonly giving in to all their desires and cravings. And uh, he says they have essentially chosen not to have free will because uh, they don't they don't think about it. So so I think we are free to some extent, but anyone who's ever tried to break a, a bad habit realizes it, we're not as free as we like to think we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both of my parents smoked. And mm. uh, in the third grade, uh, Timmy Points took me over by his garage and uh, had me try a cigarette, and it was awful. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I never, ever smoked again. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know that there was a decision that I don't want to be like my parents, or mm -hmm. uh, it was just a bad taste, and hey, that's enough for me. Mm -hmm. um, in your alcoholic uh, example of alcoholism, mm -hmm. you may be an alcoholic, but if you don't take a drink, it will never have a manifestation of what a uh, an alcoholic episode would look like. Yes. Is that fair to say? Yes. And yes. so your example then of the person that never that never took a drink, mm -hmm. but his parents were or someone there in the family was alcoholic, had someone in his family not been alcoholic, he might have tried a drink. Mm -hmm. So there was an influence in my perception of it that the history of his family helped him make a decision to just, hey, I'm just drawing the line right here. I'm mm -hmm. not even going to try it. To me, that's a powerful will. That's exercising his will. But it's not free of the knowledge of his history uh, with the family. So that's kind of where I'm, yeah. uh, you know, kind of picky yeah. about the word free. Yeah, no, I, it sounds like you're endorsing a compatibilist position. And that's the one I endorse, too. I mean, we're, as I heard one uh, neuroethicist put it at a conference that they had at Mizzou a decade or so ago about, uh, you know, neuroethics. He said, you know, someone asked him, are, do we have free will? And he said, we have free will, but some people are freer than others. <laughs> right. I mean, like, cause if you're, I mean, for example, if you're born to an incredibly wealthy family that gives you the best education in the world, 
you have a lot more freedom than someone who's born into abject poverty and doesn't get a good education. And right? I mean, you, you have opportunities to actualize your, your life plan. Uh, and, you know, mm -hmm. so I, but we do, we typically do have just enough wiggle room. And I mean, as a virtue ethicist, I'm always trying to cultivate myself. I follow, you know, Ben Franklin and Confucius both said they would always examine themselves according to these criteria at the at the end of every day. I'm like, okay, did, did I did I, you know, was I did I cultivate myself? Did I help other people? Did I make the world a better place? And you know, Franklin had this chart of all the virtues, and he would like make marks uh, when about whether or not he was living up to his virtues or had he been vicious that day in certain ways and hmm. so i think if you're critically self-reflective about those things and constantly improving as harry frankfurt says you know then you really are exercising your free will because you, you desire to be a certain type of person and you're not just a slave to your passions i'm, I'm going to keep this going just a little mm -hmm. bit longer and yet your desire to be a certain kind of person where did that come from how did we get that desire to be a certain kind of person? Yeah. Was that because we were em trying to emulate somebody or some philosophy or some? Mm -hmm. And so even that desire has an influence on our decision making. Yeah, that's so yeah. that's that's the tweaky thingy that, that I do sure. in my in my little world and you know, my world is totally unique. We all live in our own little reality. Mm -hmm. based on all the little choices that we've made. I enjoy this kind of conversation. I, don't, mm -hmm. I hope you listeners are okay with it. This is kind of life conversation. We're, we're talking ideas here. And your um, moral development process, again, sometimes we would say that's the job of the parents. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'd say, that, well, that's the job of the school. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we hear, well, that's the job of the church. Mm. How would a parent know what to do? Are they just going to do their moral development and fight for their right, or are they going to? Yeah, this, it, it gets problematic. I mean, because you need all of those things, really. Mm -hmm. We need a society in which everybody has received training in critical thinking and in ethics. And yet we tend not to teach these K through 12 because parents are afraid of indoctrination. Ah, They're going to indoctrinate right. my kid with your mm -hmm. views. And it's not something you should be afraid of because um, as our recently retired Dean Carolyn Perry at Westminster College liked to always say, I am teaching you how to think, not what to think. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is what we do in college. And this is what K through 12 educators do when they do it well. Some people do it badly. But we're trying to give people the, the tools so they can figure things out for themselves. So in my intro to ethics class, I tell people on the first day, I don't belong to a political party, so I don't have a party line that I expect you to tow. Mm -hmm. But also, I will not tell you my own view on any of these issues until your final exam has been turned in. Because <laughs> I don't want to influence you in any certain way. Mm -hmm. And if you go read my publications, you can probably figure it out on some things. But I, I don't want to poison their intellectual process because if mm -hmm. I just go in there and tell them you should believe the following things, it won't work. Mm -hmm. They're, right. you know, they're going to get mad and say, "No, I'm not listening to you." You know, you're 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 trying to convert me to your views. Uh, so what I need to do is say, "Okay, let's examine these views and the benefits and limitations of them," and they on their own can come to these conclusions, mm -hmm. and that's much more powerful because once you've done it yourself, you say, "Oh, now I know this view is true." 
uh, and and I know these views are problematic. So, so I think that's important. But we don't typically do that. Parents are afraid that if their kids get taught ethics and critical thinking, and that they're going to abandon their way of life. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I one of those areas that people are really sensitive about is religion. Mm-hmm. And I find that most of my students have told me that they're actually much stronger in their faith tradition, whatever that faith tradition might be as a result of having studied philosophy, because mm. they say, now I have good evidence-based arguments to justify my views. Whereas before I just believed them, but I always doubted them at the same time because I suspected there might be something wrong with them mm. and I didn't have an argument. And so they say, yeah, I mean, after going through this intellectual process, I'm actually a much stronger Christian or Jew or Muslim or Buddhist, you know, because of this. But they say also, I'm much more careful about what I assert to be true versus what I hope for. And, and so I, I think that's an important process. And we don't do a great job generally teaching this in the schools. And it's not the fault of the teachers. I mean, I used to work in a public school. My mom was a school teacher, right? I, I love the teachers. Uh, it's that our hands are oftentimes tied in terms of curriculum. We, we're just not allowed to teach that stuff. Yeah, there's not a lot of free will in that particular area sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly in our world today uh, here in our country, there's so much controversy with mm. teachers that sometimes they're just uh, saying it's not worth it. And uh, that's so sad that a philosophical controversy... <laughs> Mm-hmm. is putting so much pressure on teachers that they're saying uh, it's, too, it's stressful. It's too, it's too much stress. I'll find another way to do it. You're not paying me enough to deal mm-hmm. with that or whatever other kinds of things. Uh, do you hear word of that, though, in Fulton? I think it's very tough uh, because I would argue that like firefighters and police officers, teachers are one of the most critical jobs that anybody can take on in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, as Thomas Jefferson said, you're 19 years away from anarchy if you fail to properly educate your kids. Mm. If they're going to grow up and they're going to make bad decisions, and you know, Plato makes a similar point mm-hmm. uh, when in the uh, uh, the Apology, uh, when Socrates is on trial for allegedly corrupting the youth of Athens, he said, "Why would I corrupt them? I got to live here." Yeah. You know that. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want a bunch of criminals running around. Excellent. So, yeah. so yeah, I think uh, it's education is one of the most important jobs, and a lot of times it, it's a field that attracts really bright, motivated people. Mm-hmm. But then they get out, and they've got all this debt hanging over their head, and they're only getting paid, you know, thirty five thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. uh, and then they got to go get a master's degree, mm-hmm. and you know that it, it's really hard. So the burnout rate. Last statistics I saw was about three and a half years on average. People stay right. in education before they leave. And I think we as a society should do something to change that. You know, you need you need better pay and benefits and loan forgiveness programs so that you can retain the best and brightest. Because we have a lot of great teachers out there, but when they have to leave the field to pay off their loans and and you know be able to put food on the table, uh, you know you you can't really blame them. But it, we as a society wind up hurting. Which uh, comes back to critical thinking, and mm-hmm. maybe we'll approach that in just a moment. We'll take a short break and say, uh, uh, hi, folks. Glad you're tuned in to Glocal News in Social Artistry here on KOPN, your community radio station in Columbia, Missouri. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, 
each week we have on this show uh, people that are building a more humane world from the inside out. Uh, you may be one of those people, and quite frankly, I, I think you probably are. Uh, if you feel like you uh, have an hour's worth of conversation <laughs> that might interest some others, uh, please contact the station and, and have them get a hold of me. Uh, or I'm on Facebook. Uh, you can find me there, Dick Dalton, JCMO. Uh, and uh, if you have friends or acquaintances or just people that you think in the world would be somebody you'd like to listen to or talk about how their projects and, and approach to living is building a more humane world we we'd like to find out who you're interested in so uh please give us your hints as to uh, how we can make this show continue and and be of interest to you uh, my guest today is uh, dr james mccray uh, a professor of philosophy and religious studies over at westminster college in fulton missouri uh, also the chair of the classics and uh, philosophy and religion department so uh, he's been there just a little while to earn, I guess, or uh, Jim, do they sort of say, oh, well, you're the new guy. We're going to make you the department chair because <laughs> we, we don't like all that administrative paperwork. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because at big R1 schools, you know, it's being chair is like really prestigious and comes with a massive pay bump and a huge course release. And so it's really desirable. And <laughs> at small schools, we do it um, inspired by Plato, right? You, you, you know, it's for the good of the community. And uh, yeah, it, it, it it's, it's a lot of work, but nonetheless, it's important, right? And you want to make sure that things are run well. So we tend to take turns. Um, you know, my colleague, Rich Keenan, was chair before me, but he's currently our vice chair of the faculty and doing a fine job in that role. Mm. And so uh, I took over as chair when he moved into that role and I, I've been chair before. So yeah, we, we, yeah. we, we do it for the good of the community. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and a great community. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Westminster? Uh, some folks listening may not know much about the school. It is a, a private school, correct? It is. We're, we're a small liberal arts college in Fulton, Missouri. And we, I guess our biggest claim to fame, we have the National Churchill Museum. So Winston Churchill delivered the sinews of peace, the AKA the Iron Curtain speech uh, there that signaled the beginning of the Cold War uh, in, in our historic gym many years ago. And so uh, we um, really celebrated his legacy. And so on campus, we have the Churchill Museum. We have a, a Wren church that was brought brick by brick over from uh, Great Britain. It was originally damaged during the Blitz. The inside was, but the outside mm. was in great shape. So they brought mm. that over. And uh, so, Christopher so, Wren, the architect. And, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, it's quite beautiful. So if you're if you're in the area, definitely stop by to see that. But mm -hmm. we, we have a lot of great programs and we're very much a liberal arts college in, in the traditional sense of the term, you know, that that you are teaching, uh, you know, I, I'm always reminding my students, liberal has nothing to do with your political views. It refers to the liberalists, the free citizens of the republic and the skills that are needed to be a good citizen. So mm -hmm. we're, we're teaching people to be well-rounded, critical thinkers who are educated and able to be leaders in a global community. Critical thinking. Is philosophy the only place that critical thinking comes into college study? Everybody uh -huh. does it. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, 
most academic disciplines use mathematics, but the math department specializes in it. Uh, all of us write, but the English department specializes in it. All of us do critical thinking, but the philosophy department specializes in it because we teach courses in logic, uh, which is, you know, it's the mathematical basis of critical thinking. So um, I, we, we teach those courses and I think that really helps just like uh, if you take a variety of English courses, you're going to be much better rhetorically than you were before you took those courses. If mm. you take a lot of logic courses, you're going to be much better at making arguments, breaking arguments and gleaning information from reliable sources, which are the three parts of critical thinking. And uh, so, yeah, I think everybody does it, mm -hmm. but we just specialize in certain aspects of it that I think are helpful. How can we improve our own critical thinking skills? Do you have some advice for us? Because uh, sometimes we're a little set in our ways. Yeah. Well, we talked about philosophy for children earlier. And honestly, I use that same methodology that I used to teach the kids at Waikiki Elementary. I use that in my classrooms a lot, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've, and I've taught it to my colleagues, and many of them have used it in their classrooms because uh, th those seven steps of critical thinking, Tom Jackson has a system of cards. So, you know, you'll have a card that has a W on one side, and on the other side, it says, What do you mean by that? And then there are a bunch of criteria for what that means. You know, make sure you define your terms. What are the criteria that you're providing for that definition? And, and so the kids will make these and then they'll play them in discussions. So if we're having a discussion about, you know, the the war between Russia and Ukraine and what should we do in response to that? And and somebody says, uh, you know, if, if they say, well, I think that this is an unjust war. Another person might hold up their card with the W and say, what do you mean by unjust war? What are your criteria for unjust war? Oh, OK. And then they have to provide them. And, you know, they might say, well, I think your definition of just cause is not correct. And so. I really like using this system for intro level classes. Uh, I'll use it with my freshman seminar that I teach every two or three years, uh, oftentimes so that people can get those critical thinking skills. And I don't have to necessarily teach them, you know, abstract symbolic logic in order to do that. Cause I think your average person doesn't have to have that. Okay. Um, the, the, the same way that you don't have to do, um, advanced calculus in order to do your taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's important that people at least get those basics. And there are a lot of books out there that, um, you know, there's, there's one called how to win every argument, you know, that's a really simple, I, I the, the author's name escapes me at the moment. I I've used that in the, in the, in classes in the past before, but they're kind of, they're critical thinking manuals for educated laypersons. Hmm, okay. you, anybody can pick them up and read them. Excellent. Um, so, it's not as though this uh, set of cards is uh, a unique package that you have to buy uh, online. Oh, You're no. making your little card with these uh, the W on one side and the list of seven things that you mentioned on the other. So someone would look up uh, Jackson. What's his name? Yeah, Tom Jackson, Thomas okay. Jackson at, Thomas. at the University of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, but you know, philosophy for children. There are loads of people um, doing work in it. He's just the one that that I've done work with. There was an issue of Thinking, which is a the journal of philosophy for children that comes out of Montclair State, that uh, 
Tom and I co-edited many years ago. I mean, like 20 <laughs> years ago, a, a while back, uh, um, when I was a PhD candidate, um, where he published an article specifically about his methodology. And I think he's published at other places as well. Mm -hmm. Good, good. And uh, you're a published author. Uh, are you working on anything uh, new? You say you have this uh, chapter that you've done for a book that may be coming out soon uh, from Germany. Uh, that... Yeah. So uh, Alexander Ewald in Germany has been, for the past couple of years, putting together uh, what is called the International Anthology on Martial Arts and Therapy. And so his background is in therapy. And it was originally, there's a German publisher that has put it together, um, FPI Publications. Um, it's an acronym for a very long German uh, title that I won't try to pronounce <laughs> properly. Uh, but uh, FPI Publications and Huxwagen is has been putting this together. And they're originally going to publish it as an anthology series of bound books. But then they realized we can actually reach a much wider audience if we publish it online, mm -hmm. open, open source, so that anybody can... can um, can read it. And so it's going to be literally hundreds and hundreds of articles by scholars who have been invited to participate. And it's people like me who do moral development, a lot of people in psychology who are going to be talking about the therapeutic uh, value of martial arts. Um, there are going to be people in neuroscience, people in exercise physiology. So you're going to have a huge number of people contributing to this. So, yeah, some of the stuff we've been talking about today is in an article that I have on moral development in the martial arts. And because, you know, people always claim that they're doing that. So you, you go sign your kid up for <laughs> judo or taekwondo or whatever, and they'll always, oh, we're going to make your kid into a better human being. And they're going to be so dedicated and so good. But then you watch class and if they mention ethics at all, usually it's that bag of virtues. Just be courageous, be honest, be good. Mm -hmm. That doesn't help kids at all. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, you, that's, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you are getting ready to teach a new uh, group, or are you teaching one right now uh, of kids? Oh, yeah. Or? So, yeah, in the spring, I'll be teaching a jujitsu course for PE credit. So, oh, um, so this is an academic then it situation. Is. Uh -huh. It is. It is. I mean, I for a long time at Westminster, I came in 2006. And when I got there in the fall, uh, one of the students there at the time, he's actually a college professor these days. That tells you how long ago this was. But uh, <laughs> BJ Fletcher is his name. He was an instructor in Taekwondo and uh, Tai Chi through the Yuanhua organization. And so he and I founded the Mixed Martial Arts Club. Oh. So it was a student club and people from all different backgrounds would get together and train. And it was very, very popular. And then I also taught uh, Jeet Kune Do and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu classes through our health trek program. We have a program where students can take free classes in, you know, yoga and Zumba and martial arts and all this stuff to stay fit. Hmm. And so up until COVID, we did that. And then COVID shut everything down because mm -hmm. obviously the last thing you want to be doing is grappling with people while they're coughing on you. Mm -hmm. uh, Self-defense tip number one, you know, number one, don't <laughs> grapple with, with with someone who has COVID. So uh, that shut everything down. But since it shifted from a pandemic back to an endemic, we're trying to bring the martial arts training back. And uh, one of my colleagues there, Tobias Gibson, who's a professor of political science, is an instructor in Jeet Kune Do and also Filipino martial arts. So he was he was my uh, training partner and fellow instructor in, in the club and the health track classes for a long time. And so I think he's going to start teaching some stuff again, too. So the class is 
that I'm going to be teaching at the spring. It's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. It's one of the martial arts I'm certified to teach. And I, I do kind of a mixture of things in there. Like part of it is the jiu-jitsu technique. And I sneak in a little bit of judo and jeet kundo to, to round things out. And, but I start every class with some aspect of the history or philosophy of martial arts mm -hmm. so that they're getting the academic side of things. Then we'll work a couple of techniques. We'll do some sparring. Um, but then I also try to work in some of the moral development scenario training because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, I want them to be able to resolve conflicts peaceably. Mm -hmm. and, what, and one nice thing about jujitsu as a martial art is it typically lets you neutralize your opponent without serious injury. You can usually take them down, pin them, put them in a choke or a joint lock, don't put a scratch on them, get them to give up. And so it's a nice way, if the situation gets ugly, mm -hmm. to neutralize it with an absolute minimum of injury. And we live in a litigious society, so it also keeps you out of the courtroom, which is nice. Because everybody's videotaping what you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I remind people all the time of this. You know, you, yeah. you have to assume that... Uh, exhibit A is going to be somebody's cell phone mm -hmm. that has recorded you and probably posted to TikTok or YouTube within minutes of the altercation happening. Yeah. So yeah. everything you say has to be absolutely perfect to do everything you can to talk the person down, avoid the situation. And then when you're in the situation, minimize the amount of force necessary so that uh, it, it won't come back to haunt you. Because then that tape is the greatest thing ever. Right. Um, you, now you have evidence that you were <laughs> in the right. Okay, I'm going to say, hey, thank you, Jim McRae, uh, professor over at uh, Westminster College in Fulton, uh, philosophy, religious studies, father, martial arts teacher, all around good guy. <laughs> oh, you're very kind. <laughs> uh, it's been such a pleasure to be with you these two times, and uh, we'll see what we can come up with in the future. Sounds good. It's been a great pleasure to uh, join you today and in, in our previous session. So thank you so much for having me on your program. Okay. And friends, uh, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon. <laughs>